Hello, this is 12 Questions. Today we're interviewing Chelsea Kay. She is a treatment professional. Um, she's amazing. She's super young. She definitely um, understands the flaws and the benefits of the field that we both work in. Uh, it's it's a it, it, it's a long interview. It gets deep. It gets deep toward the end. So buckle up. Um, also, I'll be doing the roast battle on December first. Writing writing my own jokes. Getting serious. Getting into it. All right, guys. Let's do this. All right. Hi, welcome to Twelve Questions. Uh, I'm interviewing Miss uh, Chelsea K today, and we're going to talk about um, Chelsea's like a recovery badass. You have uh, you are. Don't shake your head at me. Don't shake your head at me. Um, but you've been working in the treatment field since you were 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is crazy so before we even get into the questions like give us a little backstory on you working in the treatment field okay so my name is chelsea mm. i um god how did i get into treatment so i, I actually didn't want to work in treatment at all um i wanted to to be an art major and i and i was for about a year and i decided god this you know the only time that my head shuts up is when i'm doing art so i figured all right having been a you know, a client previously, I had experience coming back as an alumni, and I was like, okay, so I want to help people, and the, really the only thing that I can kind of fathom doing right now is art, and so it kind of got blended into this idea of let's do art therapy with people, but to do therapy, you have to have a master's degree, and I was like, okay, well, fuck, I'm screwed, <laughs> right? I, I've got 12 community college units under my belt in art, um, so I decided, all right, so on the road to art therapy, I will work in treatment because treatment is something that I know. Treatment is something that I'm comfortable with. Um, but I've never been married to the to the idea of staying in treatment. Right. And uh, that's been consistent with... So I'm 23 now. So I've been working with clients for maybe like four years. Started school maybe... Mm, like 2010 to do human services and substance abuse counseling but right now how old were you when you started school well okay how old was I so I got clean in 2009 in 2010 I started and I was 16 when I started going to college Um, but that was because I had been expelled from school and I tested out of high school and all that stuff um so probably like 17, about to turn 18, I started going to school for this. And then when I was 19, I started at a indigent dual diagnosis nonprofit treatment center in Long Beach. And then after that, I, I worked um, a couple other places. So what was it like starting out working in the field so young? And I know you don't like making a deal about that, but that's a deal. No, it, it totally is. So there's kind of two two ways people experience me. They either experience me as um, what I feel like is kind of like an, an inflated sense of, oh my God, she must be so great. Look at where she's at. She's so young. And then there's the, the other side of, you know, I must be incompetent because I'm young. Right. Um, I mean, so it really it depends who you ask. And so the first place I worked at, um, and with any time you work in somewhere new or something where you, you've got anything on the line, like an emotion or you want to make a career out of it. So there's 
so, I mean, it, it means something to you, or it meant something to me. Um, I had some fear about it, so it was either I was going to show up and walk through the fear anyways, or I was going to let clients who were old enough to be my grandparents say, you know, really confirm that belief of, oh, no, I need to come back and do this in another another 20 years or another, you know, right. 10 years. And so... Um, let their fear push you away. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a decision to to kind of fall into that into that trap of you th- you don't think I can do this so I can't do this. Right. And, and here's right and here's why. So, and the first place I worked at, uh, I didn't have a problem with telling people my age and so that was kind of an interesting thing. Um since then I haven't told clients my age. Um just because if somebody's willing to do the work, it's not going to matter how old I am. It's going right. to matter what they can get out of the relationship, but it, if if somebody's not willing to do the work or they're doing time by being in treatment or they're there because somebody else wants them there or they've got a case with DCFS or, or whatever it is, um, my age is one more reason why this doesn't have to work for them. Right. So, um, and, and I mean, that still exists today without, you know, me identifying my age. And, and some clients are open enough to say, oh, you're just books, you're just books, or, or they'll kind of process it with me. Um, but I, I think it's easier for them if they don't know. Because it's so easy to have cognitions about, oh, she must not be qualified. Right, right. That, you know, somehow life experience is demarcated by time. And what I find really remarkable about you is that you are able to process your remarkable life experiences in such a mature way that it transcends sort of age. There's a lot of adorable cats with bells in this apartment. So <laughs> if you hear a little chime, it's because it's because people are walking around, little fur people are walking around. But are you ready for your first question? Yeah. Okay. This is question number one. What has been the highest high and the lowest low of working in the treatment field? Hmm. The highest high and the lowest low of working in treatment. So this is exclusive to working with drug addicts. Well, no. I mean, in the helping people sort of field. Because we've, like, full disclosure, worked with people with autism um, together. And then you're now working at a... um, It's more mental health, right? So it's a a non-profit. And because it's non-profit, you know how we get funded kind of determines a lot about who we get to work with. So there's kind of a large HIV population. There's a large um, kind of like parolee criminal Mm -hmm. population. And then we get like a little bit of a sprinkle of, you know, DCFS cases or or Medi-Cal clients. Um, But kind of how I separate it into my head is either HIV or, or parole. Okay. Okay. And, oh, but we, I mean, we certainly, I mean, with substance abuse probably more than anything else, it's like the comorbidity or the rate at which like two disorders co-occur um, is astonishing. You could have, you could have a personality disorder with a guy who's got alcoholism right. or learning disorders or mood disorders and, and usually um, eating disorders. Eating disorders is a big one, especially. a huge one. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it. Did I ever tell you about the time the bulimic girl used to throw up on my shoes every single time I'd be on shift? No. Yeah. It was her protest. She did not like me. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't envy that. No. <laughs> That's an experience you can keep. <laughs> Eating disorder clients are hard. It's like I've had people describe them as like the princess complex, depending on the disorder, oh, and, yeah. and and some of that I feel like um, can be true. And then there's like such like an ugly scary cunning side of it that's like man I'm so ready to give up my life in, in order to right. fulfill this this idea of who I think I should be when right. you I have no idea what's actually happening in the mirror so it's, it's some are sicker than others I would say yeah it's and, a scary yeah. and really really common in recovery you yeah. see a lot of women right you know you see a lot of women uh, myself included if I'm going to be honest struggle with that and it's not it's 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 tough you know because we're just trying to control something Mm -hmm. and a lot of us we get clean and we just start eating yeah because it's amazing yeah Um, or it's like i need something but this is no longer an option yeah those uh, couple years when we were just doing candy for dinner all the time Mm -hmm. because it was so stressful yeah but what uh but what was what's been like your best moment and your worst moment in the field um I think it depends on the population. So if you're working with like a population that like hitting milestones is much more frequent because the goals are much smaller, I think there's more magic moments. I, I, I think autism is way more magical than working with that population or developmental disabilities is way more magical than working with somebody with substance abuse. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Because loading mean, the dishwasher is, yeah. a, is a victory. Yeah. Or if you can... Uh, put soap on your hands without having to get physically aggressive with me like man that's a good day that's a really good day um so i mean i guess it depends on on what you're working with um but even even with substance abuse when we see anyone kind of get any sort of insight when i see somebody get insight or someone who's you know now willing to be a little bit vulnerable I, i would consider that kind of a magic moment um i don't know it's hard to say what would be like the like like the best moments, but I think it's when um, oh you know I and I think this is probably the most magic moment I that I can think of today, and I obviously this has changed throughout the years and whatever, mm-hmm. and I, I think I'm saying this because I'm thinking of this particular I was thinking about this client recently, um, so I, I had worked with a guy who was nonverbal, physically aggressive, older gentleman, um, he. He would. Uh, I thought he had sensory issues because he'd get really upset and go walk out of the room and go lay down on the floor or, or like go lay on a couch and put his head down. So I was like, God, okay, autism. He must have sensory issues. That's why he's leaving. He's not leaving to go hit someone. He's not leaving mm-hmm. whatever. He's leaving to be alone in a quiet place. And so um, there's, I feel like a kind of make it or break it point in a relationship with any kind of client. Um, and it's really about reports, whether it's substance abuse or if it's developmental disabilities or something with an eating disorder where it's either you just lean into like the the rapport and the trust right. and, and I'm going to meet you in a vulnerable place. Like you've met me in a vulnerable place so you know that this is authentic. Right. Um, and, and, and this client, he uh, he had, he'd get upset and he would grab people's arms and squeeze. And so um, he had grabbed a woman's arm and she was in a wheelchair and she freaked out because she right sees a yeah. nonverbal aggressive guy right hard time being mobile can't really get away yeah so and she can't really defend herself so she's just afraid of him and so he goes and he and he grabs her arm and she gets scared and I say okay come on follow me and we go and I'm like let's walk it off so we walk around the facility 
and um, the, the place that I had worked at the time was kind of set up so that there was different rooms dedicated to different purposes, and so we ended up in the salon, and so he um, he would be physically aggressive with me, and then, and then he would want something from me, and so he wanted me to help him put on lotion, and I looked at him, and he... You know, he gestures for me to give him lotion, help him put him on, and then he goes to grab me, and I just looked at him, and I was like, you know, I can't I can't do this for you until I know that you're not going to be aggressive with me anymore. And he just, like, put his head down and put his arm out, and I helped him apply lotion. So um, I think with any relationship, when we can show up and be like, all right, I'm willing to go there with you, but, you know, how, how we cross this line is really going to determine the trust here. Right. Um, but then I, I can think of experiences that I've had recently with other clients who, you know, they just come in broken and, and ready and willing and, and here's my pain and here's my truth and this is what I need and what do you think? And um, I don't know. But I, I think the lowest moments are when you you work with people who are just shitty. Yeah. Um, and, what, and what I mean by shitty is um, the helping field is probably more than any other field. I would lump nurses and doctors and... Um, you know, people who work with disabilities and people who work with drug addicts, people who work with kids. There's a reason why we get attracted to the things that we get attracted to. And so sometimes we get, you know, people who have been clients, which myself included, are people who, you know, get something out of the work, which is great, but they, they come in and they're still a little broken or they're not willing to do the work or um, what they're looking to get out of the job isn't what you get out of the job if you're really taking care of yourself. So Right. I've seen people kind They're of looking for validation, yeah. for a sense of self, a sense of purpose. I am identified as the walking martyr, the person who works with X, Y, Z broken people. Right. And the better they get, the more complete I am. Mm-hmm. And the more broken they stay, the more I am not good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's martyrdom. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we get a, oftentimes a lot of sick people in the field who, um, it's something they don't have any business being there because... But it's they're just they're just not ready yet, and and mm-hmm. you can you can still be a little broken I think and work in the field as long as you're looking at it, and you're working on it. And, and if anything, that's probably you know a greater example to clients is to say, yeah, man, I get that, and this is what I'm doing, or this is what I've you know what I mean, what I've done, right? Um, because if we think we've hit a plateau of like, oh no, I'm cool, I got, I got all this. the issues fixed. Um, a that's probably not true. And I think it sets kind of like a weird tone. So, um, well, it separates yourself. It's really easy to be like, I'm perfect. These people are broken. Yeah. You know, and, and it's us versus them. The yeah. Way, the way waiters and waitresses are with customers. You know what I mean? You're like, you're like separating yourself from the experience. And, um, I had somebody describe it to me that way, or, you know, the way an army unit is, or the way, you know, we organize as a team because there's safety in that. Mm-hmm. But then we forget that we're, we're all part of that human experience and we're part of the treatment process too. Right. So people have different words for it. Um, when they talk about what we get out of working with, uh, with clients, um, it's so funny. I have a roommate, and her her mom's trying to be an MFT, and it just makes her crazy <laughs> because uh, mom doesn't seem like she's ready to be a therapist. Um, but I don't know. Um, I guess I guess there's a, there's a couple different things that drive me bananas. Um, when people enable clients, 
that that drives me crazy or if people um and by enable i mean i'm gonna remove these consequences from you so you don't have to to walk through them right and if, and oftentimes if, if i'm removing your consequences um i get something out of that yeah and and it does something to me to watch you have to to walk through some stuff yeah and and that's kind of inherently what's problematic with the field is that um if we're going to sit with somebody in that moment, we have to be willing to sit with them when it's dark and scary. Totally. Um, otherwise, we're engaging in... Um, and I, I wouldn't, you know, fully chop it up to codependency, but I would say that it, it's related to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was a woman in my life who had... And, and whenever I hear the word codependency, I'm just like, oh, let's okay, let's break that down because a lot of people think codependency is is the is the mom who picks up her son from the cops so that he doesn't get arrested, or it's right. But that, that's not that's not inherently codependency. That's certainly enabling, right? Right. That's removing a consequence. I mean, if she was picking up her son from the cops so that she could avoid an emotional consequence, of what would happen if he went to jail? Maybe that that would be more in line with codependency, but. Um, when I, when I think of that word, I think we have to be really careful about it. Um, there was a woman in my life who had described codependency to me as you have a dog. And when you, you know, let's say the dog goes in the street, right? So you're standing there and you're like, get out of the street, get out of the street. And the dog's like, what? Just in the street. It's okay. Yeah. So what happens if your dog goes in the street? You get hit by a car. Yeah. So, so what happens if your dog gets hit by a car? And you're sad. Yeah, so the, I don't have a dog anymore. Right. And if I don't have a dog anymore, then I have to, you know, probably feel those feelings of not having a dog anymore. And so, you know, codependency is really about all the things that I do to, to not have to feel a certain way. And so it looks different, right? For some people, it may look like enabling or it may look like um, being really compliant, even though I don't want to be compliant or um, sacrificing bits of myself because it fits better with you. Yeah. Ooh, that one's that one's mine. Yeah, or or for some of us it looks like avoidance, right? Mm. Think of the cold shoulder. Yeah. I and, love the avoidant codependence because I'm the opposite of that. And so I usually end up chasing them down and it makes them uncomfortable. I yeah. Don't like that. Yeah, I, I think I, I more so <laughs> fall into the avoidant line. It's like, oh God, I can't walk through my feeling and I can't advocate here, so I'm going to avoid you so you know you're upset, but I'm never going to show up and be vulnerable enough to say why I'm upset. Right. 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 And then assume I'm punishing you by <laughs> avoiding you when the reality is, is I've not addressed my need. I feel like shit and I feel like I have to avoid you because um, that does something for me. And then my world gets small. Right. That's insane. That's happening in every workplace, by the way. Yeah. Every workplace, every group of people surrounded by cubicles with god knows what going on you know what i mean any place you have to do monthly birthdays and there's a water cooler and a break room that is occurring like any workplace i think yeah Uh, not not discounting what's going on i think that adds complete value to the discussion because everyone's experiencing that Mm -hmm. the difference is when you're in a helping field it's heightened by the fact that your business is helping people right so you're already dancing that line Mm mm-hmm it's a little different than, like, I have to turn in TPS reports. So. I think we tend to think of things in a more black and white kind of way, but with codependency, it's a giant grayscale, right? If I'm a drug addict, mm-hmm. I can stop using, and that alleviates a lot of the problems, but I can't stop having relationships. Codependents can't stop having relationships, right? Because then that's even more codependent, right? Then I'm right. engaging in the avoiding and probably the self-punishing and, right? 
and maybe at this point I've got enough awareness to know that, oh God, this hurts and I'm doing it to myself. And so there's that like other kind of layer of cyclical um, shame and guilt and this is why I'm not enough and see it's confirmed by my, right? So there's, we tend to think of it, I think, as either you are or you aren't and that's just a lie. Right. Um, I, I think of like past relationships and I think about past workplaces and um, anytime that I give up something about me that's important to me to better suit you, you know, that's a pattern of codependency, right? I dated right. a guy and he was a skater and he'd always want to go skate and he'd want me to watch him go skate. And so I would sit there and I would resent him for the fact that I never said, you know, I really want to be drawing instead. Right. Um, and so I'm harboring a resentment and he's got no idea. Right. Right. Because he's off skating. <laughs> he's just uh, having a good old time. He thinks you're into it. Yeah. He's the dog. Right. Um, so yeah, right. Cause so what happens if I tell him, you know, actually, no, I don't want to go do that. I want to draw instead. Right. I think it's particularly dangerous in workplaces that, um, are kind of built on this ecosystem of the individual is inherently not enough. And mm-hmm. so to be enough, we have to be perfect. Yeah. We either have to be perfect or made to be enough by our coworkers. And so, um, there's a lot, uh, there's, there's certainly a lack of vulnerability and a lack of honesty, but there's also kind of like, I want to say cutthroatness about it, but that, but that's not it. Um, I just want to, I want to wrap it up in dishonesty and maybe, maybe we'll come back to it later. <laughs> well, that kind of gets to our second question, which is like, what's the most insane institutional practice you've witnessed? Okay. So I, I think the most insane practice is, is acknowledging that something is illegal or unethical, but Do allowing it to happen because the act of doing something different is too costly. We see that a lot in what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going on in my work right now, right? We can't, you can't fire somebody for being unethical because if we fire somebody for being unethical, then we what? We lose somebody who's doing 40 hours a week of whatever the hell it is that they're doing. And so that means that affects clients. And when that affects clients, that also affects funding. And if that affects funding, that affects people's pay. You know what I mean? Right. Then, especially in nonprofit, then it threatens like contracts and fun. It just, you know. So I think it's, I think, the most disappointing thing is when we allow stuff to slide because kind of just because of the machine right, right. of the workplace. And so it's easier to let it slide because, you know, to, to do to do anything different would, would take too much energy. Right. And so we're really facilitating it at that point. Right. And, and so what to draw the line in the sand? What does somebody have to die? Does somebody have to set the place on fire? Right. To be like, okay, so, you know, we let you slide on these, you know, a few unethical things or illegal things, but you know, now you've, you've hit this, you know, big dollar unethical item. Right. So now, now we get to address it. So I think, um, we make compromises as a field. Yeah. And one of them is convenience or availability over, over what I would really say is of being of service to clients. Right. Um, and you have arguably better boundaries with that than, than I do. I know that there are certain times where I'll walk in to the workplace and I'll kind of see like maybe the way the way they document their meds isn't entirely ethical or safe, or the way that they keep certain things. And you go in and you change it. You make a statement about the injustice, and then you change it. And which I think is amazing 
especially because of kind of where you are at in life. Like you're, you're this, you're incredibly powerful in those situations. That's what I've witnessed you be is incredibly powerful in those situations where I've not had as much courage because I tend to get fired. So, <laughs> <laughs> because when I've had enough, I, 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 I say exactly what I think and, um, and I don't necessarily use the, you know, I, I don't have the moral high ground on my side always. Um, so what you, you generally do and can argue on behalf of the client on the spot, which is just magical. It, it makes you a really magical employee. I, but I, I would argue that, that that goes back to not having somebody have been my advocate. Right, so when we talk about people who enter the field and who have issues, right? I mean, there is there's a, a, an extended period of time where I was like, "Fuck, if I'm going to work with clients, like I don't want to do harm to clients because I haven't addressed all my stuff." Right. So I spent time in Coda, and I spent time like doing like ugly work with therapists, and because um, I, I I didn't want to do that harm, right? right. I don't I don't want to play into that that system. Um, so I, I think that's what it's about. It's like an inflamed sense of justice. So if only had somebody had shown up for me in that way. When I was younger, maybe things would have been different. And so, right. I mean, I, I think that's kind of when we when we look at, you know, that other side of mental health or substance abuse treatment or developmental, whatever, whatever it is, is, is if we can take some of the, the gunk from our past and address it with some kind of healthy self-love or willingness to look at ourselves and really identify, oh, yeah, that hurts because nobody was there for me in that way. Right. And if I can start showing up for me in that way, maybe I can do that for someone else. So, I mean, I, I think that's kind of representative of dysfunction right what was inherently dysfunctional turned like i don't want to contribute to this anymore so how do i do it different do you have like a like a story or like a moment where you were working with a client or the institution was doing the client dirty in some way and you took a step back and you were like this is insane i have a lot of those moments (laughs) Give, give us one give us one um you know, I think the first time I had ever said anything um, was not the first place I worked at, but the second place I worked at. I had worked in there. I had managed a woman's sober living, and then I had worked, you know, a couple days a week with their adolescents. And one of the things I did was I sat in with this woman who's a psychiatrist. And for the people who lived in the sober living that I lived in, I, there, were, there was a greater sense of accountability of, oh, yes, and let's mention that you just relapsed over the weekend or, right? right um I've had to do that where you're 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 telling the doctor the truth. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just encouraging because I feel like that you know even it's that's weird. a line because I don't yeah. want to interpret, but it's just like yeah, not everything's good. You just picked up, so why don't we talk about what happened before then? Right, right. Because um, this could be a med issue. You could be experiencing. Yeah, or it could be you wanting more medication now. Could be maybe related to right to what you know whatever it was that may not be inherently about kind of like a psychological symptom, but just like a problem in living. Right. Um, Manageability. You become grossly unmanageable and trying yeah. to fix it externally. Yeah. So so this psychiatrist, and uh, she was interesting, but uh, so I was probably like 19 or 20. Yeah, I think I had just turned 20 when I, when I was doing that. And um, she had wanted me to recycle medications or what, what I interpreted as recycle medications. So she, in the facility, you know, we had a lockbox, blah, blah, blah. Um, where they could self-administer medications. We would just make sure, oh, you're taking your meds. Cool. Awesome. And we wouldn't let them hold on to them at night, but they had, you know, access to them, which probably now is a licensing issue, I would think. But um, 
she had told me, oh, if they change a medication and they have anything left over, you know, I want you to bring them back in on Fridays. And I was just like, oh, this lady. Hmm. No, you can't. You can't. That's recycling medications. Like, you're a drug dealer is what, is what you're telling me, right? right? You I, I send mean, those meds back to the pharmacy to be legally destroyed. Yeah, and not, that works. And, and not even that way. And I, and I knew what she had been doing because I would see clients bring home bottles that would say, you know, whatever the medication was without their name on it. It would be like a printer label kind of situation it wouldn't be like a a pharmacy label no it wouldn't it would just be an orange bottle that she had gotten from god knows where with her label maker and so it's like i don't i don't want to contribute to this and so i had told my supervisor at the time you know like what what, let's say something somehow the medication was compromised and that hurts a future client right I, i don't want to be a part of that and so um i came down to my like executive director and i was just like i'm not doing this if you want to do that if you want to give her the medication back you're going to have to do it because I'm not going to be liable. Right. Um, but, I mean, there, there's been, like, a slew of other incidences, too. Um, I feel like working with developmental disabilities is particularly mm. scary because usually when you work in substance abuse treatment, a lot of people are either addicts or have been introduced to 12 steps or self-help <laughs> programs. So they're more likely, I think, than, you know, other populations, uh, you know, of clinicians to to look at themselves just Right. by the nature of who's primarily attracted to that. But with other helping fields, maybe not so much. No. You don't no. have to be, like, you know, emotionally present and spiritually, like, satisfied and all these things to work with somebody with a... Your side of the street doesn't have to be clean to work with somebody with autism, whereas, you know, if you're an a- working with an addict, you know, the addict's going to smell your shit. Yeah, they will call you out. They will not listen to you. Yeah. Yeah, if your programs... That's one of those things where it stinks from the head down... Like, if you have a garbage program and don't have any boundaries, mm-hmm. they will march all over you. Yeah. And I know this because I had a garbage program and no boundaries when I started working in treatment, which made me an awesome employee on the surface and a garbage tech because they just marched all over me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and clients know. Yeah. They always know. I can get away with shit with this one, but I can't with this one. And Right. Or it, and then I became, like, hyper vigilant. And so then they knew they couldn't get away with anything with me, but they hated my guts. <laughs> so. I would argue that we have to be somewhere in between. Yeah. Because if we're going to, you know, enforce all the rules all the time, whatever, we may miss out on some of those kind of like right. make it or break it opportunities to show up and have empathy and be like, man, I really get that yeah. it, it that it's really hard for you to put on your shoes at seven in the morning and get to group one time because you just came off a relapse or somebody you loved just died or I know you're right. going through something. So I think if we were to, to, you know, give the full consequence there, it would almost be like a disservice. Yeah. And so that's something I didn't understand until I started working with people with autism. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who taught me that. Well, autism is magic. It, it really is. That was a well, working time. with people is, you know, I'm not saying having autism is magic, but I think there's, they're, they're a special population for yeah, a lot of really cool reasons. And we had that moment working together where we literally went into treatment mode over somebody's fixation mm. and obsession with video games together. Yeah. We're basically having an intervention over video games. And that other, there was a third employee in the room who did not understand what we were doing and did not see it as effective. Mm-hmm. But it was. I mean, we ultimately got the video game away from the, the client and had him go about his day and eat food and take a shower and be a person as opposed to, like, a smelly smelly trash monster. <laughs> um, but, 
it was amazing the crossover of the skill set. Yeah, I would say yeah. it's the same skill set everywhere. You just have to yeah. learn the population and apply it. Totally. Right? Showing up with empathetic listening and accountability and, and being supported and asking, what do you need from me? How can I support you through this? Um, or being willing to, right, have boundaries and explain the rules or right. have boundaries and say, you know, and I appreciate that, but, you know, this is the direction we need to go. I, I mean, all of that stuff is the same skill set. It's just, how does it fit here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which makes uh, people who work in substance abuse treatment a great workforce, too. Because we also work real hard. That's the other thing I saw is, like, when you throw us into other mental health situations, we work very, very hard. Because we all want to make everyone super happy. Yeah. You know, we all want the gold star. But... Um, or we're, we're used to the uphill battle sometimes with clients, too. Yeah, that's true. That's right. really true. But... I think you were going to say something about working with autism population and cut you off. I don't remember. No? Okay. Not enough caffeine in our lives today, is there? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I never really feel quite caffeinated. I'm not sure what that experience looks like. I know. Like. It's, been, it's been... We don't have a great many things, people like you and I, but candy, sleep. coffee sleep yeah i'll abuse the shit out of some sleep <laughs> yeah yeah we definitely um uh, mm-hmm. we like a we like a nap mm-hmm. yeah shopping mm-hmm. other things yeah it gets it gets uh we, we enjoy the, the the fuck out of certain things mm-hmm. which is really interesting when did you make the decision to work with people as a career we touched on this before but like when did that light bulb go on when you were because because to me, it's always I've always had one foot in that pool and always kind of looking around like this can't be forever. I <laughs> definitely, I definitely have a time limit, and that's why comedy's been so magical. Because then it, it completely was like, oh, that that's the thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had not experienced that with helping people, whereas you clearly had that light on. Like you're 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 all in. Well, I don't even know if I'm all in, but and. I mean, I, I would say that to get me in the door, I had to have a lot of kind of explorative conversations with people about, you know, I want to help people. I enjoy coming back to groups as an alumni. It's, you know, I get something out of that experience. Um, I mean, I've always kind of just been an, like a little bit of an asshole. Uh, and it, I don't sound like it. There's like a smirk on your face. I don't sound like it. But uh, when I... You have moments where sometimes I wonder if you caught the autism when we were working together. You're very blunt, yeah, which and, I, I love. And, and, that's, and that's really what it is, and it's kind of historically been that way. So for when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author, and then I wanted to be a critic. So I feel like kind of just like inherently wrapped up in there is like, where are you going to take this? That's um, very true. Like as a friend, if I'm going through something emotional, I know to call the people who are going to just be like, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. I hope it gets better and to process it them with them first and then call you because sometimes and you mean really well but it'll be like okay that's too soon I'm not ready to hear my part yet I love you ouch just let me cry right now just please let me cry right now that um, reminds me of a time when I looked at you and I was like I just don't think you're ready for consequences yet ah, that's true. and then I walked away that's true it was so funny it was great. The great part about that, it was in my office, and I was your boss. <laughs> um, but as as friends, you were very much aware I had a really 
I had a mosh pit of a love life at the time, and so that was bleeding over into all areas of my life. And <laughs> you were right. I was not ready for consequences. And then I got consequences. Yeah. Like, pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but it was so funny. I don't think you're ready for consequences yet. You Yes, I agree. <laughs> well, let's go eat candy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's something kind of inherently interesting and rewarding about showing up for people yeah and just kind of exploring their stuff with it because I, I don't pretend to have answers because that's fucking crazy and a lot of my answers people wouldn't want <laughs> um a lot of your answers are questions a lot of my answers are questions yeah because i don't know what the fuck the answer is and i'm not really interested in knowing the answer but i'm interested in you finding what you think your answer is and then seeing how it plays out which makes you a therapist which makes me a uh, going to be therapist. Yes, but, um, but I mean that's that's the skill set. Yeah, because and because think about it. If I have all your answers, I'm officially responsible for everything good and bad in your life, and yeah. I am just so not willing to sign up for any of that. And people really want to make you responsible for that. Yeah, I think a lot of people want that. You and know, tell me how I feel about this. It's, Wait a minute, you're wrong. I'm mad at you. Yeah, it's inherently yeah. problematic. Like if I give somebody advice, that's basically like saying. Oh, you couldn't have come up with this on your own. Right. Which is, um, you know, is kind of... What is the word I want to say? I don't know. It starts with a C, though. Condescending. Condescending! Yeah. Yes, yeah. Condescending. I, I do that... Um, I hate to say that, and I wonder... It makes me wonder if I do that in relationships a lot, mm. where I'm like, I observe you do this behavior... I'll just sort of all of a sudden report <laughs> like I'm writing a government, you know, like I'm writing some sort of yearly review on somebody's pro like progress. All of a sudden, it's I'll so just funny. say, I've noticed this pattern of behavior and I've gotten better about not trying to force that person to also see my truth mm. in relation to that. Um, well, they're just, not going to see it. Just to kind of say, <laughs> yeah, because they're not going to see it. And then it turns into like, I'm I'm arguing and it's it's gross and so one thing I've just kind of learned to do is to say like you know I've observed this but to even better say hey when you treat me this way this is how I feel mm -hmm. you know as opposed to making it external and but I definitely I, I I have some issues with carrying the work at home with that which we've talked about that too I bring home the unethical stuff that's what come what I take home and mm -hmm. then I like set my brain on fire about because um, that feels inherently problematic but something that I had thought about when you were talking is you know something that someone had instructed me to do years ago because I was so fed up of feeling like a fucking broken record of god I have your answers I have your answers please just do Ugh. this and you'll feel different and, and yeah. she had told me that I had to start asking people if they wanted my opinion yeah, and and it, I think it's an interesting experience for clients because I'll, I'll I'll do that with them and I'll be yeah. like, can I share with you my experience of what you said? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can I tell you my opinion of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if I'm not exploring or poking around, mm -hmm. then I'll say that stuff. I don't know how much I do it now, or if I do it without thinking about it, but um, or if I just get quiet and then people are like, oh, she's fucking thinking, and then sometimes they probe. Um, my homegirl in the program says. Do you want the friend answer or the program answer? Mm. Which is always because sometimes we call each other in twelve step programs, and what we want is love and acceptance. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake. I need some love. Yeah, 
I feel like a piece of shit. Yeah. And sometimes we use, we just, we are, as listeners, stop listening and start telling the spiritual principle that one could have applied. It's like, they fucking know that. And not (laughs) only that, but it's shutting down any empathy or emotional availability. Mm -hmm. It's a defense mechanism. Yeah. And it's totally judgment. It's judgment. You were right. That's a good conversation, Chelsea. You're good. Okay. By the way, what is the name of your podcast? 12 Questions. Oh, that makes sense. That's why there's 12 questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Are we ready? Okay. Mm -hmm. Question number four. How has the job affected your personal relationships? Gross. We had this conversation. I remember when we were first becoming friends um, and you were beginning to date somebody um, we had that conversation about not putting the person on the couch. Yeah, I love your language for that. Oh, putting them you. on the couch. Um, so I think when you tell people, like, I'm a substance abuse counselor, I'm a counselor, I'm going to school for clinical psychology, mm-hmm. you tell them any of these things, and either, and maybe this is about me and not about them, but no. right now it, it feels a little bit about both of us. I <laughs> uh, have the same experience. Yeah, is, and I'm not even trying to be an MFT. So. You're... You're either going to tell them everything that's wrong with them mm-hmm. or you're inherently crazy because of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird kind of like dichotomous kind of, ex- I think, experience for people. Unless they've shown up and done some work in their own life, then right. they're more willing to be like, oh, man, that's cool. Because I think they unconsciously want us to fix them. They can smell it. They can yeah. smell that you can cry on the shoulder. Yeah. That's when you got to have boundaries <sighs> and be like, I'm so not willing to fix you, but I'll sit here with you if you're going to be in pain. And that makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, that's really that's that's the one that that drives. I don't want to say drives people away, but definitely they. It scares people. It scares them. If I'm not going to fix you, if I'm just going to sit here with you through whatever this right. is, that's inherently vulnerable and scary. Because I'm not going to take away your feelings, and if I'm not going to take them away, like right. that means you got to sit with them. Right. And, and oftentimes, you know, we're, we're trying to get rid of them. So I had a conversation with my supervisor one day and she's like, God, I just think that client hates you because you're just so therapeutic with him and you're not going to take away any of his shit. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, if I don't, I mean, I wouldn't want to sit with me if I didn't want to deal with it. Um, right. I mean, and sometimes I don't want to sit with me when I am dealing with my own stuff. Um, but how to answer your question, um, it can be inherently problematic, right? Because we, we, yeah. we never receive training and we have this experience and, and even, you know, 12-step programs kind of teach us to, to call a spade a spade or to, you know, hold each other accountable. Um, but when... And to listen. And to listen. And so... To listen with an open heart and empathy. Yeah. And, and that's a hard skill to develop because there has to be, there does have to be some sort of... Um, boundary within ourselves mm-hmm. about how how much of this am I willing to swim through with you right before I say I love you get a therapist yeah they don't like that when you say that either yeah because I because I've walked that road it's um yeah nobody likes being told no. that they want they should go to therapy Unless they already want to go to therapy and you're just like mm-hmm, I'm just confirming it sweetheart <laughs> right well and you um I've said this to you. I've said this about you. You are like you are the conversational equivalent of a two ton gorilla. That you 
are very specific in your words and your boundaries are very clear and you will defend those boundaries, not defend, but you will honor those boundaries in the moment. And for a lot of people, that's really difficult. For me, that's very difficult. And it's difficult for me. Yeah, I know. But you, 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 I'm not saying it, it, that it's easy. I, I see you work at it and that um, that can be very intimidating but you don't mean it to be intimidating and and it's really about that other person feeling weak in those areas it's a you should never change that but it's it's a beautiful thing and and i think um both of us have experienced that in different ways like i i tend to like in the dating world um i'll have initial connections with people that are very strong and then they will literally cry in front of me sometimes naked Ugh. And and say that's the worst time to cry. And say, oh yes, there's nothing. There's nothing worse than um. There's nothing worse than sad dick. Um, there, uh, that sort of like I've literally and it keeps happening. It keeps happening. I have to stop the bleeding. It's I'm I'm not speaking about this in past tense. This is real time for the last how many years? Mm. Three years. I'll I'll connect with somebody and um, there will be like a level of physical and emotional intimacy that is achieved. And then that person will literally have a breakdown. Yeah. And tell me, mm-hmm. I think I need to go to therapy. Right. That's, I think, five, six times. I mean, that's the same thing as being the two-ton gorilla in the room. To, I, yeah. Right? I mean, it's no different. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you think about it with our family members, Oof. too, for years I got, stop it with your therapy shit um, for my family. And so now I, I just... I got. I, I just don't play out any of that tape. If they want my opinion, they now know they can ask. Right. But um, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 so hard because um, I was dating a guy uh, for you know over a year and a half, and it's so interesting, right? Talking about being a little broken and being attracted to broken people. Yeah. Because um, it's inherently safe, right? Yeah. If I'm going to be attracted to somebody who's just as or more broken than me then I probably don't have to do a whole lot of growing and we're probably going to let each other slide but when you know and this has been my experience when one of us starts to grow it gets problematic mm-hmm. or say say I, I've grown a lot but I'm still being attracted to that broken person and not to say being broken is inherently bad or whatever it just means there's more process to be done but um, and that's inherently emotionally safe Right, And so when you ask about couching people, right, the idea of I'm going to transition out of a role that's supposedly your equal right, into you being the client in the room, I'm officially more authoritative. I'm officially, mm-hmm. you know, I have got more power. You know, I probably think I know more about you than you think you know about you. Right. And um, there's no longer any potential for an equal relationship. And so it's, I think it's really, that's, yeah, you just kind of captured, you captured the whole phenomenon of um, me being able to be attracted to, seek out and be attracted to the guy who's not over his ex-girlfriend over and over and over again. Well, what happens if we show up and, and are with somebody who's our equal? It's scary. It's scary. We have to so be vulnerable, scary. right? It's so scary, yeah. We have to do something that's challenging, mm-hmm. right? It's easy for me not to meet your right. equal. I mean, I, I've actively had to seek out, like, not being, you know, like, the counselor or whatever, the yeah. therapist, and they were with people, and that, I think that was a danger, I mean, it was, 
certainly a valuable lesson to sit there and watch you listen to your pain or you know what I mean yeah to be present for it but then there I think I kind of went to the other extreme uh, you're officially getting passes for for being a little broken oh. and so near the near the end of that relationship it became about how just because you've experienced trauma just because you've experienced family dysfunction doesn't mean it's you a, still get to treat me this way. Exactly. Okay? It's not an excuse for your behavior. I'm great you have awareness, but it doesn't it Do doesn't it doesn't it. negate the harm. Right. And so that wasn't a, a thing I was expecting to get out of it that, you know, I have and continue to. And then, you know, I had to come back in and look at, okay, Chelsea, one more time. Right? Right. What's the fear with being with somebody who's your equal? Right. So what is it? Um I mean I think I think it stems back to to kind of those like inner messages, uh, you know, that, you know, like right people teach us how to, you know, we teach people how to treat us, right? Yeah. So there's that, mm-hmm. and then we pick up all these tapes, you know, when we grow up about who we are and what we deserve, and so oftentimes mm-hmm. it's not enough. And so if I show up in a relationship, but I don't have to be your equal, I don't have to be vulnerable. And if I don't have to be vulnerable, I don't really don't have to get hurt. And also, if I'm you know dating somebody who I, I think isn't necessarily my equal. I'm also not going to be really probably fully satisfied, but I, but again, I don't have to be vulnerable. Right? I don't really have to do too many new things. How intensely do you feel that dissatisfaction? Because I can identify with that statement very strongly. I immediately feel like, oh, this person's an 85%. Not even an 85, maybe a 65. Like, yeah, like I, it's like the shiny new toy. You take it out of the package and you realize one of the arms just fell off. I mean, I would be, I mean, talk to me when I get another relationship. Um, but you but can transfer I, that to friendships and yeah. family members. And Well, then I just decide we're not going to, usually I just decide, you know, we're not going to exist in this kind of role, right? I'm, I'm, right. You're not going to be the person who's going to fill that, that need for emotional intimacy. But I think, you know, there's something kind of inherently attractive for some of us who have, you know, had some trauma or had had some pain that it's like my brokenness, right? Fucking namaste, but for broken people, the brokenness in right. me acknowledges the brokenness in you. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's okay. And so we almost lean into it, or at least that's been my experience of, yeah. okay, at least I'm not the most negative person here. <laughs> right, right. Or even, you know, there's that, um, we're just, we've seen so much that um, sleeping next to somebody who wakes up with PTSD night terrors right is almost not it's not normal but we know how to handle it oh we see, both done that yeah we but you're you're much sweeter than me give me when I'm awake I'm, yes sit there well you know I'll listen to you blah 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 I'm probably not going to say anything because if I say something I'm more likely to put you on the couch right but um the Chelsea who is awake and the Chelsea who is asleep, those are two different... Somebody inhabits this body at night. Because <laughs> I've been woken up by somebody who's having night terrors or, you know, mm-hmm. gnarly, you know, dreams from just awful trauma. And my response is, figure it out yourself, I'm sleeping. Right. I've got no ability to show up in that way, in any kind of way if I'm... T- so My response was, you're safe, it's just the cat, calm down. Yeah, so, I, I mean, you. we would... Yeah, we meet people in different arenas. If I don't have that kind of hat on, I'm just like, I'm fucking sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> leave your trauma for the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after that point, I wasn't woken up again and talked to you about <laughs> it, which oh I wouldn't gosh. have known that was the, the reaction had I not been informed. <laughs> That's so funny. What is something you've done professionally that you wish you hadn't 
because those boundaries that you have didn't yeah they didn't yeah they didn't you weren't born with them you had to you had to do some stuff that made you uncomfortable like when we worked at the autism center and they were logging hours of service that were not taking place that was one for me where i was like that's not that was a five minute session (laughs) that was not a 45 minute session we're billing the state of california for an entire hour yeah that place is messed up yeah or i can even think back of things i've said to clients that i wish i didn't say just lapses and oh i can think of that i remember i was working at like a group home kind of setting and you know it was like two clients per little room and there was two clients who were talking to me and he was talking to me about one of you know one of the clients roommates and the roommate was just i'm gonna smoke weed forever and it's okay and it's not my problem depression is my problem and so i was talking to his uh to one of the roommates and i said well you know how you know how stoners are Mm. right so i totally and then he thought they thought that was hilarious and went back and shared it and so i you know i did harm to that relationship by saying you know kind of minimizing the experience and what he was saying by just kind of putting him in a in a category can i can I tell you, I had a moment and I had to put this on my last eight step where um, I can't even remember the client's name, mm. but he was super disturbing. Like he was, it was also a group home. He was violent. Um, he sold drugs. He was cruel to the clients. He was cruel to the staff. And I'm pretty sure he overheard me saying that that kid could possibly grow up to be a rapist. I regret that. That's my biggest work regret. Because I didn't... That That's incredibly harmful. Yeah. And not my place. Yeah. And I, and I think it's... To really unpack the issue with that statement, we would have to... That would be ours. Yeah, that would that'd be a lot of luggage. It's um, a lot of luggage, yeah. I, I mean, was I, just, I, when you say that, I can think of another situation. I was talking to one of my coworkers again at the same place, and so we had a client who... Um, she had gotten like put on like phase freeze or something where they like lose access to television and passes right. and you know, non-com just... phase freeze that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. so she had gotten in trouble, and mm-hmm. so we had one of those doors that you could probably hear through anyways, but it was uh, like the split half door. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was open. So I was talking to my client, not my client. I was talking to my coworker, and you know I had said something like. Because she, she was shocked that she was getting in trouble and, like, she had never done this behavior before. And it was about, like, having an attitude or something. And, and I had make a, made a joke about how, you know, her very serious sentiments of, oh, no, like, I've never been rude like this before. Right? Like, you know, very sarcastic of, right, yeah, mm-hmm. That's never right. happened before. And so she'd heard me. Right. She went outside and cried. and Right. Said, how dare you? This place is supposed to be safe. And she didn't want to talk to me again. So I right. think saying things that aren't necessarily appropriate in nature um because we get fast and loose in those tech offices yeah i I had some of the hardest laughs of our lives saying some of the most inappropriate crazy stuff about staff about clients about the organization i know for sure everyone could because you have to let it out Mm -hmm. but it's over time we have to learn to be not messy about it right i've I've struggled with so some of those boundaries of right who gets to hear what i have to say right has Mm -hmm. to be more protected so i've done harm in that way yeah um 
But then, too, like, I feel like, you know, while there was people in my life that I got to see a lot of ugly examples in the field, I've Mm -hmm. also got to see a lot of good examples that I think have kind of shaped some of the boundaries. And I think a lot of the boundaries came from CODA. Yeah. And then from feeling like, you know, I didn't have a voice and, right? Yeah. Um, All that kind of inner work. Right. So I, I don't think I had to stumble over all of them to get some of them. That's true. I mean... I think the bottom line is we're not perfect. Right. We're not, we're, and we're never going to be perfect. And that's okay. And that's totally okay. Yeah. We just have to acknowledge it with them when we're not perfect. Yeah. And they get hurt behind it. Yeah. And it's scary for them when we're not perfect too. Yeah. It's, it's real scary for them and, and it's good for them to grow. It's a valuable experience for them to learn that, that the folks kind of orchestrating their care are also human beings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm having that experience right now because we're having a change to one of the main contracts I work. And so they are, they're afraid. They're, you know, right. I don't want to be inconsistent with them. I don't want to contribute their fear, but I also don't have all the answers. And to show up for them and say, you know, my commitment to you is to let you know as I know, that still doesn't feel good. But right. I think it still acknowledges, you know, some of the, like, the humanness about it. Of, yeah. You know, this is also upsetting for me, but what can I do for you to feel stable as we walk through this inconsistent time right and well and as people especially as people with trauma and hurt and pain um, both as employees and as clients we're spiraling towards a certainty Mm -hmm. that is an unachievable goal right there's no and and we really do kind of also live in a society that demands a certainty right and um that that isn't i don't think as humans achievable that's that's been my experience is that there really is no there really is no certainty there's no guarantee that you know a violent person is going to grow up to be you know a, a heinous violent sexual criminal right you know um there's no guarantee that that person's always going to have an attitude problem forever right you know um it's just all that moment and being and it gets back to that just being uncomfortable with the pain not just other people's pain, but the pain of the situation, the pain of the the imperfections of the institution. Right. You know. Yeah, so how we sit with people as we walk through that is, right. I think that determines kind of the whole quality of the relationship. Because if I need to fix you because you're in pain, because that triggers some pain in me, we have problems. Uh, how do you deal with fear and anxiety? Um, how do I deal in what, like, just in life? Either uh, in life or at work or both. Um, it depends. It, it depends. Anxiety. I feel like I, I, I've i got a pattern. It's obsess and freak out, obsess and freak out. And then and then just kind of like lean into the inevitable. Like like say it's an exam. I, there's some kind of threshold where it no longer makes sense for me to engage in this behavior anymore. Because I've, you know, realized that it doesn't, engaging in it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't change the outcome. It doesn't, you know, make my boss more likely to live her life different doesn't make my test grade any different it doesn't make my likelihood to get into grad school doesn't make the fucking condition of my lungs <laughs> any different can we talk about that for a second yeah, we can talk. working together at 21 years old they told you there was a potentially cancerous growth in your lungs mm-hmm. you had to go through that yeah you thought for a second i could die yeah i yeah yeah, and I think you watch me kind of go, oh, God, it's all doom and gloom, and then decide, oh, no, I get to decide when, when it's doom and gloom, and then decide, you know, you know, today I'm just going to feel like shit about this. That's yeah. a decision. I'm just going to feel like shit. And I, I think we 
get to do that, but I feel like people don't feel like that's an option of deciding, you know, how we're going to react. Well, but I'll decide, oh yeah, I'm going to I'm going to wallow in this. <laughs> well, they tell us to check our shit at the door, but at the same time, you had to come into my office and say, "Anna, I'm afraid I'm going to die. I just quit smoking mm-hmm. and vaping, cold turkey." Yeah, that was And hilarious. I'm going to be a nightmare for a few weeks. Yeah? And I was like, "Okay. That's fine." Yeah, uh, yeah. You know? But you told me it wasn't like, oh, why is all of a sudden this person a nightmare? Yeah. You know, it's like people go through breakups and then they suck at work and nobody, nobody thinks to be like, hey, I've got a little personal stuff going on right now. I'm a little sad. Sorry if I'm not, you know, 100%. We but, keep it so close to the chest. Yeah. And then we get written up and then it becomes an HR concern. So I would argue that depending on what it is. We can share that with people. Yeah. Right? So so if I was to tell all the clients at the time that I may have something oh, that cancerous in my lung, that oh, would have done harm. Yeah, that would have. But it. But if I... This happened recently. I had a client who his entire bank account got drained. And I, the day that I was supposed to do a session with him, my car battery was stolen. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of fun and like, ah, being met by the universe with I've been done wrong you know, by some outside kind of source, not going to deal with those feelings behind it. Um, I mean, it, I think it depends on what we walk through, what we're walking through, how much we can share and how much transparency we can show. Right. Because we don't want to do harm. And so I would say, you know, it's okay to show up and be vulnerable and, right. you know, whatever. But we can't, um, we can't make it so the client has to have our answers and we can't share something that would jeopardize the safety of the client. Totally. Emotionally, mentally, physically. We have to maintain our role. Yeah. So if I you're right, if I say, hey, guys, <laughs> I know your mom died of cancer, but we're going to continue working together for the next few months, and this is a thing I'm going to walk through, that definitely is going to have an effect on that client's ability to, to be present with working with me. Right. But if I let a client know, God, I'm, I'm so frustrated because when my car battery was stolen, my hood latch got broken off, and this is what I'm doing with these feelings, Right. Mm-hmm. That's a little different. Like, I oftentimes make clients check in before we start a group where they're at, right? What's going on with them? And then, and then we'll get into whatever we're supposed to be talking about. And, and clients will reliably turn it back. Chelsea, where are you at? Right. Right. So I don't tell them, oh, God. Right. I really have to look at how does codependency play out in my, my intimate relationships? And that's fucking painful to feel like one more time. Right. So I, I can't really go there with them. Right. Because I still need to be the clinician in the room. But I can, you know, say, you know what? My life's a little out of balance right now. This is what I'm going to try to do to correct it. Or this is what I'm doing because I know if I don't, this is where I, right. where I go. You know right. what I mean? So I don't think there's, you know. Yeah. We have to be able to be human with them. Otherwise, how are we going to expect totally. them to, to see us, you know, in a way that, you know, we're fallible too? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important. What are the most common character defects you've experienced on the job, both yourself personally and with others? I think that's all about fear. Yeah. And so that comes down to inadequacy. Mm-hmm. So we overcompensate. We don't want to be wrong in not admitting to the fact that we're wrong. We do harm because we don't get to correct it. Or um, a client suffers or a staff member suffers. So I think when we think we have to know all the answers... That's the worst. Yeah. And I'll tell clients, like, I, I don't know, but I, 
but I can get back to you. I mean, that's a lot different than um, needing to be right or needing yeah. to know. Um, but what's the worst character defect? I feel like we should almost like define that. Well, I mean, I mean ego, right? Yeah, ego or um, um, arrogance. Yeah, fear. Yeah, not being willing to show up right emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, judgment. Yeah. Judgment. I remember a lot of times... Well, feeling all feelings out the door when I'm in judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a lot of times, especially managing, being like, oh, it's like they're sick. Or, oh, oh it's it's like they have a developmental disability. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah I, you're right. That is exactly how they should behave. Right. I know. It's It's a lot. But that's what we're here for. If they get here perfect, what are we doing? Yeah, well, they don't need to be here at that point. That was yeah, and that was kind of the thing too of like realizing that a lot of times um, I see people, and I, I've been guilty of this myself. Is the this person is a problem that needs to be fixed, right? And not a person growing at their own rate of recovery. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, and usually how we define the problem is context specific to whoever's defining the problem. Exactly, and that's exactly. that's not even about the client anymore. This is inherent problem problematic for me, right. but it may not be for the client. Right, right. I mean, if the client's also having issues behind it, then I would say, God, let's look at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I probably another character defect is thinking that. Or maybe not a character defect necessary, but like a distortion in cognition is thinking that this is the way it has to work for it to work. Mm, mm-hmm. My right. way or the highway. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that like rigidity of mm-hmm. do this or die. Right. No, life is not that clean. No. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And I, I think you know, rigidity is a is a huge thing because change is really hard for people, and if they if you want to see. You want to see some rigidity institutionally. Mm-hmm. Instru- you know, institute a, a, a wide sweeping change, and you'll hear yeah. gossip. You'll hear. I'd say that's about fear, though. Yeah, it is for sure. For sure. Um, how do you experience forgiveness, hmm. both internally and externally? I feel like forgiveness is really about acceptance. Mm-hmm. Right, and especially in some of our relationships, it's like if, if I'm gonna agree to to forgive someone, that means I no longer get to use it against them. That means I, right, no longer get to view everything in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think that the go-to is being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's yeah. like oh, somebody's gonna try to. It, it's almost like somewhere on like a kind of metaphorical switchboard. You know, there's an alert that's gone up. Uh, somebody's trying to show up for me emotionally. Right. And be vulnerable and not want anything from me. When's the other shoe going to drop? Yeah. So I think um, I think it's startling. It is startling. For sure. Especially when there's not any expectation associated with it. And I would say that's a two-tongue gorilla kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, holy crap, how did I forgive this person? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the the hardest is um, certainly like self forgiveness. Yeah, and I think that has to be kind of like a systematic process of like self love, and well, I think that we oftentimes take it back. 
Right. <laughs> and one of my experiences with forgiveness is I can't forgive somebody else until I forgive myself in that interaction with that right, person. Right, for signing up for it. For signing up for it. Yeah. Yeah, I really had to that that kind of opened the door to everything mm-hmm. it's like oh i can experience I, forgiveness went from being an intellectual exercise to being an actual act a, a physical and emotional act where right. i was able to say like no I, I i accept me too in that situation right um practice some self-kindness yeah because i mean we're not perfect yeah i had a woman in my life the same woman from the dog story that mm-hmm. she would tell me that resentments are um, like instances of failures to show up for ourselves. Right. So I, I think when we when we talk about kind of forgiveness and that self love kind of concept, it's it's really about um, am I okay with not having you know meeting my own needs and, and you know placing them externally and. Can I reshift that back to me and be okay with? Okay, now how do I, how do I nurture myself here? Right, and that's a whole ugly, painful process. That's inherently beautiful, and you know, opens the door for so many things. But actually, walking through it, I would, you know, I, I identify as um, a two-ton gorilla kind of task. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah, totally. It's big. What has been the weirdest workplace amends you've had to make? I guess it's kind of funny, because um, when I think about amends, I really think about not wanting to make them, huh. <laughs> and when I don't want to make amends, if I usually need to or feel like something's unjust, I try to be cognizant um, of my behavior, because God, I would hate to have to make an amends to somebody or something for doing something that, when I wasn't fucking angry... I still thought it was true. I still mm. thought it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's about ego or whatever. Um, something I'm trying to, to practice right now, though, is greater communication mm-hmm. in work. So, And I feel like that's kind of like a... I mean, that's almost like a self-amends. Because yeah. I get really frustrated when I'm kept out of the loop. Because it seems very clear to me that the more communication you have, the better the results you're going to get. The more, and you know what I mean? Just yeah. the more effectively things can run. Um, but like when clients who aren't my clients show up and want things or want me to sign things or whatever, you know, some of that has to look like I have to let their counselor know. Right. And I can't forget. <laughs> like I, I have right. to let them know right now. Otherwise I'm, I'm going to forget. But um, I think... And I, and I would even say this goes back to to some of the other stuff, right? Because you, you had mentioned that I can show up and be like, this is an injustice and right. want to make it different. Um, some of that experience of like needing to kind of have an inflammatory sense of justice is fucking exhausting. Yeah. So exhausting. And so I almost feel like the amends that I have to make is... Because I can't make this workplace uninhabitable. Right. Um, or inhabitable. Am I making your words? I'm making No, it. uninhabitable. Okay, so that's a word. Um, yeah, unhospitable, something. Yeah, so the amends is not everything gets to be a crazy red flag. Mm-hmm. But certainly now there's like kind of a threshold of if somebody can be done harm here, then, and then I have to say something. But 
it's not my job to tell everyone what's wrong about them, how they could be doing it better. So kind of like being more appropriate in my role. Mm -hmm. I got a thing come up recently, uh, you know, and I was charting and it was like, I don't even know, like 845 and I look over my coworkers on milfshookup.com. On the work computer? On the work computer. On the work time. Married more than two decades. Milfshookup.com. And so, um, is it my job to address what's inherently unethical and wrong about that with this person? I don't think so. Right. Right? Do I think that there there could be harm done by this situation? Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, it's not the first unethical act done by this person. Second of all, I think, you know, man, if we're really trying to embody about, you know, something about getting our lives to be different and being mm-hmm. open to, like, new experiences and acting, you know, in line with, like, recovery and spiritual principles and, and showing up even when it's uncomfortable, um, I think there's something kind of inherently wrong with that idea. Of, yeah. And I'm also on Mel's hookup between groups. Um, so, I, you know, I think, you know, in that kind of more conceptual way, I think there's harm that's done is, yeah, I'm saying one thing and I'm doing another. Right. And there's no way that clients don't know that. Right. I would say that certain clients are more in tune with that. Mm-hmm. And they're probably more in tune with whatever is serving them at the time. Like, if right. it serves me to not have to look at myself, I'm probably not going to see that that person's inconsistent and incongruent and not walking the walk. Right. Um, and so I may really like that person because they don't make me have to look at my stuff. But if I'm the client who really wants something and my needs aren't being met, I think, you know, I think there's harm being done there. Um, but kind of just figuring out, you know, what what is a kind of battable offense and kind of how much do I have to take home of it? Mm-hmm. And so some stuff I just, I just don't even bother anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think something's really wrong, then, then I'll say something, but... Um, it's not my job to change the workplace. Mm-hmm. It's my job to, to show up, you know, and make sure clients aren't getting hurt. But that doesn't mean who you are in the world has to get different. Right. Even if I would like it to. Right. How do you take care of yourself for the job? So I think it's a process. And I, I'm honestly not doing a very good job of it right now. Um, but ideally... And I say I'm not doing a job of it right now because in August I started a master's program and so I'm kind of recalibrating how do I have friendships? How do I walk through the end of a relationship? How do I um, have feelings mm-hmm. about it? Um, and try to minimize, you know, how I'm acting out or <laughs> whatever with those right. feelings. And it's interesting because when I think about work when I'm not at work, I don't really think about the client. Right. I think about, I think about the coworker, right? And I think about, oh, is this just? Is this unjust? Um, but I think how we, how we take care of ourselves, how I take care of myself is like, I, like I'm responsible to do art. I am. I have to. I'm responsible to talk to people about it, right? I take care of myself by, you know, letting my boss in if I'm, if it's out of my scope or if I'm not comfortable. I think sitting with the discomfort of a situation and not going somewhere else with it is um, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's particularly dangerous when our self-care and what we take home and who we are in the world actually means something to us. Right. Does that right. answer your question? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. That's awesome. You're okay. awesome. 
I'm okay. Yeah. We'll see. We gotta do things. Yeah. To ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, letting her, like, I just got a client who is on a different contract, and he's, like, freaking out about it ending, and I was just like, I'm so sorry. I don't have any of these answers, because this is the first time on this contract. Right. But <laughs> we can call my boss, and right. I can follow up with you, and so I think um, taking care myself in that situation is god i don't have to have all the answers doesn't mean i get to contribute to your fear Mm -hmm. right i'm responsible to help you walk through it but i'm also going to acknowledge that i'm also walking through it at the same time with you (laughs) you mean you don't want to ride the fear roller coaster all the time no Mm. no i I, it bothers me when i have to be inconsistent with them right and sometimes it's hard to be inconsistent because the institution's being inconsistent a lot of times and then that's that's upsetting so god or higher power. Where are you at with that? Mm. Kind of view spirituality as like a mountain range. Right? When I... Not a dog in the middle of the street. Not a dog in the middle of the street. <laughs> right? Because a mountain range like suggests like altitude. Right. And so there's been times when I've been super spiritually in line and wanting to grow and learn and experience and go to the beach and journal and pray. And then there's been times when I'm like, I'm born to die. We all are. This kind of existence is about which meaning we ascribe to it. Um, And so that's inherently kind of problematic if I need to live by some kind of religious code or otherwise have some kind of answer for what happens next. Mm. But I... I'm kind of comfortable where where I'm at now with it. It's I, I'm not super thrilled on God. I and at the same time I'm unwilling to not have, you know, any kind of spiritual, otherwise ethical kind of principles to go by. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think there's um, and I think how things work out is kind of suspicious. And so some people say, oh, that's God, no coincidences, or you know, I kind of feel like there's reason about the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I sensed a disturbance in the force. A, fr- a friend of mine kind of disappeared for a little while, and I just knew he'd been talking to his ex-girlfriend. Mm. And I didn't know how he knew. And then I ran into him, and he was like, yeah, that's what I did. And yeah. I was like, oh, I knew that. How did I know that? Sometimes, I don't know. I think for me, I think we're all just kind of tied to each other spiritually. Little bits of string going everywhere. See, the analytical part of my brain just squints and says... I love that, though. You know. I love the battle going on. I have the same battle going on. There's a flying spaghetti monster in here and a magical old man with a beard. There's all the things. Why does he have to be a man? (laughs) Or a woman. And spaghetti monster has genders, too. All the genders. All of them. All of them. Um, uh, why were you thinking like biblical person? Maybe I was thinking Harry Potter. I could, well, maybe I was. Maybe I was thinking Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Gandalf is showing up. Yeah, it's Gandalf for sure. Um, my it's intuitive for me to go to that kind of cognitive place. If we know something's wrong because somebody's acting different. So if somebody's normally consistent in showing up and engaging with you in this way and they're not doing it, mm-hmm. and we know have enough information about this person, it's not hard to put two and two together. Yeah, you can intuit what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but I, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for... I mean, I think, I think we know. Like, what, like, real knows real, kind of. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how else to describe that. I think what's fascinating about you is that you... 
you love evolutionary psychology Mm -hmm. and you love looking at the world from that hyper analytical reporting place Mm -hmm. and then you, you also like to get your cards read by a psychic every once in a while it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, 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 I love that. I love that beautiful juxtaposition of your spiritual reality. And not that, I think one is an intellectual reality, one is a spiritual reality. Or maybe they both are. I don't know. Maybe, in all, I mean, it's probably all the same mishmash. Yeah, well, I think... Our, bra- our brains. Um, well, I mean, but it goes back to that idea of not everything is black and white, and if things are innately gray... Right. Then it's how we navigate that gray. Yeah. Right, and so, like, devoid of a world of spirituality, and, you know, kind of... I mean, and, and a lot of spirituality people will try to chop up to religion. Yeah. And, and no. I, I'm inherently... No. ...opposed to you putting your religion on me. But I'm not opposed to somebody else putting some guidelines of living on you, so long as they're generally not distasteful. <laughs> um, all right, man, be kind to people. Great, beautiful. Not opposed to that. Um, don't, I don't be a dick. Yeah, don't be a dick. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like I have like spiritual ADD, which is kind of weird. Me too. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's, um, and certainly, I almost, and I, from being in 12, I almost have, like, spiritual guilt. I can't talk to God only when things are fucked up. (laughs) Right, or you'll hear that, you'll hear that guy with 30 days in a meeting going, like, and I just have the most amazing relationship with my God, over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's like, that's not, that's not what we signed up for, man. Like, yeah. Like, I wanted a new way to live. And or they have the ninth step promises coming true at 60 days clean. Yeah. On and the maybe, first step. Bullshit. Well, and maybe they a little bit do, you know? Like, I want to I believe the better story. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's true. I want to believe I bet better. your life is better for that. It has to be. I yeah, have it has to, to be. I have to believe in a little bit of magic because there's been a lot of horror, you know, and... and I have to believe the better story or I'll be intensely sad mm-hmm. over certain things. Yeah. And and generally um yeah. Generally it, the better story works out. But not always. I mean, we've we've definitely been through some things where it wasn't the better story was not a reality story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like some things have not worked out okay. Yeah, I and I almost feel I'm like okay, but those situations were not okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I totally get that. Yeah, it's almost like that idea of the secret. It's so, and, and talking about believing the better story. If I believe things are going to work out, and I kind of put my emotional energy, and I know you just cringe at the secret. Yeah, that's the thing is, I I believe the better story, and at the same time, when anytime somebody brings up the secret, I'm like, ugh. Well, it's almost like CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral right, therapy, right, 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 in such a much more pseudoscience-y kind of socially appealing kind of way. Of if I believe good things are going to happen, if I put energy into good things are happening, and I put my behavior into good things are going to happen, good things will happen. Good things probably going to happen. But on the flip side of that, I think a lot of people take that secret logic and they invert it, and they're like, "How did I manifest?" this negative occurrence in my life oh yeah no there's got to be a limit because i've heard that too yeah and i and i hear people who are sexually abused a lot Mm. um 
And I don't think that's about the secret anymore. It's about how can I confirm I'm a piece of shit? In fact, how can you assist me in confirming that I'm a piece of shit? Mm-hmm. Here's the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make this cyclical. Well, and you talked about this a little bit, too, about in your process of step work, um, when you you work the steps the first time in one program, mm-hmm. and then you took it upon yourself to work the steps the second time in another program, and then had to kind of take a step back and go, at what point are we just digging and digging? And, like, when does this become emotional cutting? Oh, yeah. No, I've been there. Yeah. We'll wear it two years clean there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a difference between let me confirm how unworthy I am, how I'm not enough, how I'm unlovable, right? Mm-hmm. How I'm undeserving. Mm-hmm. And right, that, that kind of tape. And, you know, how can I learn to show up my, for myself in a new way so I can know I'm not enough? And believe I'm not enough, right? Like the difference between the, the right the the greatest distance we'll, we'll, we'll ever travel is the 16 inches between head and heart. So, you know, I, I think when we, it's about how we approach it, right? And then how vigorously we approach it, I think, can be the indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I'm kind of aloof about it, I'm probably not really doing any work. I just need you to think I'm doing a work. I'm doing some work, but if I I'm doing this to the point of like emotional and mental exhaustion mm-hmm. and I'm beating myself up for what I'm finding and I'm coming back in and finding that right finding right very loose words with quotations um that what I've always suspected is true mm-hmm. then a, I'm probably not actually doing the work because I've got some kind of alternative motive right right you need to see me as how much of a piece of shit that I already see me mm-hmm. and that's been my experience and I've also been surprised by like okay one more time let's confirm it and then find that it wasn't true so mm-hmm. I, I don't think everyone gets to walk through that and, and come out the other end and be like, oh, yeah, that's a crazy thing I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I'm programming myself to death. Yeah. 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 And Sometimes there, it's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. And there is, and, and for me, the the statement that alleviated, or alleviated that for me was... Um, there is no spiritual finish line I'm going to cross. Yeah. I really saw it as this race yeah. that I was going to win at some point. Yeah. And I never I never won. And guess what? I never will. And neither will you. Right. <laughs> and that's okay. And that's okay. When you asked me that question, I think of this experience I had probably like three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. I had decided that I was going to go back to my house of horrors. I was going to drive to the house that I lived in in Cerritos and I was going to face the trauma and I was going to go there and feel all the feelings and effectively feel like shit and then just journal and cry in my car about how awful everything was and I was Mm -hmm. doomed to play out these patterns that other people talked to me Mm -hmm. that or you know taught me that Mm -hmm. I learned in their addiction right that I carried into mine and then that I've carried and owned and then tried to discard some of in my recovery um but I was surprised because I went to that old house Right, the morning glories and the ivy growing up the walls weren't there anymore. And the tree that the cats, you know those trees that have like really soft kind of bark that just peels off? So we had cats that used to climb up the trees and just uh, scratch up and down and rip off the tree bark. And the um, poppy seeds, what are those? California poppies weren't there. Mm -hmm. And the red fire ants weren't there. And our cars weren't there. Right? It was just a house. And all all the things in my childhood, they weren't there anymore. And I thought, 
if this place is different, maybe I'm different. Maybe this can be different. And so it wasn't, you know, I had intended to go there to be like, oh, God, this is so awful and painful. I'm going to swim in my fucking trauma and and lean into this ugliness and own it. Right. And then carry that into my relationships by saying, oh, you're fucked up. Oh, me too. Yeah. But that that wasn't the experience. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because, you know, it was, there was, like, a car, and then... Well, it wasn't even, like, in the driveway. It was just nearby, and there was, like, trash cans lined up orderly, and it was painted, and it was different, and it was like, wow, maybe maybe that house is different. Right. Right, and the, and the symbolic house in my head, maybe that's not really that house, right? Maybe that doesn't have to be there anymore. Right. Um, I, I was surprised by it, but I don't know if that's everyone's kind of experience. I don't think it's everyone's kind of experience because I think that sometimes we love the pain more than or maybe it's the fear of growing past it is greater than the fear of staying in it. Mm-hmm. Because I know that pain, that familiar, that familiar pain, and um, I think it just it, it illustrates your intense and inspiring level of grit. <laughs> that, I mean, that's really what it is. Is you've got grit, girl. Hmm. Yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> 